Before we get to today's Insurance Uncovered, we wanted to tell you about an opportunity from podcast sponsor Balto. Do your agents sometimes forget to say the right things on sales or claims calls? Maybe they overlook discovery questions that build trust with a potential policyholder, or missed collecting key information on a first notice of loss call. Well, with Balto, you can scale excellent insurance conversations to your agents at the push of a button. Balto rides along your agent's screens, listens to both sides of the conversation, and shows them the best things to say live on the call, instead of after the moment's lost. After just 14 weeks of using Balto, National General Insurance saw 16% higher conversions and 53-second lower handle times. Head over to balto.ai slash to get a free pair of Bose headphones for a demo. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Insurance Uncovered. We're back today to bring you more insurance news and an inside perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. And just in case you forgot, Insurance Uncovered is produced by the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies. I'm Kathy Imus, and today we're uncovering credit scoring in Washington State, new compliance guidance for insurers looking to resume the use of this important underwriting factor. Plus, we'll hear from an insurance regulatory advocate. State Farm's Richard Bates sits down with Neil Aldridge to talk about how he foresees the industry navigating today's most pressing regulatory issues. But first, in insurance news. There's new compliance guidance in Washington state for insurers seeking to resume the use of credit in rating and underwriting of auto, homeowner, and renter's policies. This comes after NAMIC's successful defeat of the OIC's previously issued emergency rule banning the practice. Companies this impacts must evaluate their neutral factor filings. Based on the wording used in the filing and the complexity of rate changes included, the OIC has provided instructions on whether insurers need to submit a, quote, note to reviewer or if a filing, a new filing is required. Insurers not intending to go back to the use of credit must also evaluate their previous neutral factor filings. If the company rules state the neutral factor filings are only applicable while the emergency rule is in effect, a note to reviewer must be submitted to inform the OIC of the company's intent to continue its use. Otherwise, no action is needed. Of note, the OIC is moving forward to adopt what is essentially the same ban on credit, and that rule could be adopted as soon as next week. If that happens, the rule would go into effect the first of next year. Meanwhile, in the nation's capital, the Pandemic Risk Insurance Act has been reintroduced in Congress, and there are a few noteworthy changes. First, the program now includes mandatory participation for insurers. And the second important change is the concept of a parametric trigger for non-damage business interruption insurance losses. As it's currently written, the property casualty insurance industry would be exposed to substantial pandemic-related losses that would cause significant solvency and liquidity concerns. Prior to PRIA's reintroduction, NAMIC focused on educating members of Congress that pandemics are simply uninsurable. NAMIC and other industry leaders developed a potential solution for absorbing the cost of pandemic risks in 2020 called the Business Continuity Protection Program. 
And while our association still supports the principles behind the BCPP, NAMIC has acknowledged that it only considered three months of business revenue replacement in the original draft. A new study from Porch estimates more than 3 million U.S. homeowners will pay more for flood insurance under new Federal Emergency Management Agency flood risk rates. That's an increase of 77% of American homeowners with flood insurance, while the other 23% will see a decrease. FEMA's Risk Rating 2.0 launched last month as a new flood risk rating system affecting all national flood insurance program policyholders. Previously, FEMA and insurers measured flood risk based on flood zones. The new system is instead based on a variety of factors, including distance to flood source, severity and frequency of flooding, and property characteristics, such as the cost to rebuild the property in the event of damage. Well, each year, NAMIC recognizes a special group of insurance leaders for their service to the association and our industry with the NAMIC Service Award. This year, State Farm Associate General Counsel Richard Bates was among the recipients at the NAMIC Annual Convention in Nashville, Tennessee. On today's Unscripted, NAMIC CEO Neil Aldrich talks with Bates about his service as a regulatory advocate and how he foresees the industry navigating through today's most pressing regulatory issues. So joining me today on the edition of Unscripted in the podcast is someone who many of you may not know but it's someone who has left a large thumbprint on an awful lot of public policy issues that affect the insurance industry. Uh, that work actually was recognized by NAMIC earlier this year at our annual convention with the, with the presentation of a NAMIC service award to Richard Bates of State Farm. Uh, Richard has been a longtime uh, in, uh, participant in the NAMIC public policy process, working with us at NEIC issues, international issues, a host of state regulatory issues all across the country in different aspects over the years. And Richard is a, is a great uh, person and a great friend to NAMIC, but really is a great friend to the industry. And we thought it might be interesting today to kind of highlight some of Richard's work that he's done. So today, welcome, Richard. Thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Neil, and congratulations again. Thank you. So before we kind of dig into some of the issues that you've been working on over the years on behalf of the industry and and NAMIC, let's talk a little bit about your background. Um, So you've had 35 years in the industry, 25 of those at State Farm. You're an attorney. Uh, So tell us a little bit about your work as a leader in the law department for 20 of those 25 years at State Farm. I will I'd be happy to do so. So when I became a leader in the law department, I, I began after having provided about five years of counseling and litigation management on actuarial and uh, underwriting matters, which included managing several administrative rate hearings, as well as such regulatory matters as rate of return issues, rating factors, risk classification, uh, trades, secret data protection. Uh, but then Becoming a leader in the law department required me to shift my focus from the day-to-day hard skill activities to incorporate the day-to-day soft skill activities and a mindset for a more balanced, successful leadership experience. Well, this actually prepared me for what was to come just two years into my leadership role. I was privileged to be invited to take a two-year development opportunity to lead a 400-person claims organization in Florida. 
for mostly non-complex automobile property insurance claims handling, but also subrogation, total loss, and uh, catastrophe response coordination. You might say that my true development took place then, largely because it required me to step outside of my comfort zone in at least three ways. One, I was no longer operating in a legal services capacity. I was truly and fully on the business side of things. Two, I was no longer in a home office environment. I was now in a large field office. And three, I was no longer working on actuarial underwriting issues. It was exclusively on claims issues, which was pretty much my first exposure to this side of the business. So back then, I was probably satisfied that these three challenges would be the primary development takeaways until a few minor storms in 2004 called the Charlie, Francis, Ivan, and Jean, actually four hurricanes, hit the state of Florida in the span of less than two months. Um, having the catastrophe coordination team reporting to me, I saw firsthand how the insurance industry, through the lens of the State Farm Organization, responds to those in need after a disaster like, like no other industry. This experience I did not anticipate to see how our own claim handlers having damaged homes and autos themselves came to work to help others file claims and receive payments to live somewhere else temporarily, get their roofs tarped, and ultimately see the property repaired. What I also did not anticipate was no matter the type or severity of a covered claim, Every individual transaction with a policyholder or customer is an opportunity to retain or lose a policyholder. Now, all in all, many of my leadership lessons while in Florida, and I've been back in the law department in Bloomington, Illinois now for 16 years since, those experiences in Florida have made me a better leader in the law department, having collaborative responsibilities for evaluating government affairs attorney candidates, boarding them to be on my team or even someone else's, leading the process improvement challenges to make the market conduct examination process better for our organization, representing State Farm in NAIC meetings and collaborating with trade associations like NAMIC for advocacy at these meetings, or working to improve the engagement, satisfaction, and professionalism of our law department staff. I have my early experiences in Florida to thank for my approach to leadership today. Well, that's great, Richard, and you really have got a great story to tell. I remember well when you, before you were took on the, the experience in Florida, I was working with you here at NAMIC in the early days, and then um, we always missed you a little bit when you were in your role um, in the claims area, but certainly was valuable for you, and then when you returned back to the law department, your engagement with NAMIC kind of started back up again. So you've been deeply involved in a, in a number of public policy issues uh, for the industry over that time, served on many NAMIC committees over the years, and helped us in a great many ways. So as you know now, we're facing a kind of a challenging regulatory environment in many respects. Uh, given your history and, and the issues you've been involved in over the years, what sort of your greatest concern at the moment when it comes to either regulatory overreach or just the environment in general? Well, thank you for asking, Neil. As you may or may not know, at one point in my early career as an attorney, I worked as a regulatory officer in the New Jersey Department of Banking and Insurance. And in those difficult days in the New Jersey automobile insurance market of 1990, when significant changes were made to the automobile insurance delivery system, 
So I, so I understand the regulatory point of view from firsthand experience. But I, I went back to the private sector, um, spending six years in California with a well-respected commercial and specialty lines carrier, uh, to indeed understand better how insurance works, having witnessed the, what I might describe now as potential regulatory overreach then. One of my main interests is how the law and economics intersect. Uh, working at State Farm has allowed me to, to, to do just that, to, to really understand better how a law and economics intersect. But my greatest concern with regulatory overreach is the, the potential for this to, to minimize this overreach to, to minimize the many consumer and societal benefits produced by a thriving competitive market when the market is allowed to function. You know, no doubt most states' unfair trade practices prohibitions or their unfair claims practices prohibitions, as well as you know, market conduct examinations, those are important curbs on improper treatment of insurance commissioners. My interest for the last 20 years has been primarily on encouraging a lighter regulatory touch in rate regulation. As written in some state laws, and I wish there were more states to do this, a rate in a competitive market cannot be almost by definition, cannot be excessive. And it seems that the debate today is, is about making sure another standard, that rates not be unfairly discriminatory, that this, this standard not be abused. And the challenge for the industry is maintain the traditional definition of unfairly discriminatory. And it seems we may not even have agreement right now uh, in the regulatory community on what the definition of unfair discrimination in rating and underwriting means in this day and age. But I would like to still think, though, in a competitive market, whatever rate that that consumer is being charged hopefully is the rate that they went out to procure and there wasn't a rate assigned to them. And in a competitive market, you don't have rates assigned to you. You go out there and get the rate. And that's what, what a competitive market allows, uh, I think, a consumer to do is to shop around to find the best rate, the best combination of price, product, and service that fits their needs. And I, I'd say that, that NAMIC is in, in its work with the uh, the, the risk-based pricing project that, that it had going on in the study that it produced, I think, I think it shows the, the value of a competitive market for all consumers. Yeah, <clears throat> you and I have had a lot of discussions over the years about those issues around the competitive market and the, the, the conundrums we face as an industry regarding the terms of unfair discrimination and excessive rates and how that works in a competitive marketplace. I remember finally our old days when we actually were, you know, moving to reform state regulation and got rid of a lot of price regulation. But those days seem to be long gone now, and we seem to be in a, an area of, of encroaching regulatory interest and oversight rather than diminishing at the moment. But hopefully, we can kind of turn the ship back to some reform at some point in time before both of us are uh, retired and out of this industry. Uh, hopefully, that's the case. So let's talk a little bit about the NAIC. You mentioned some of their work there at the end of your, your previous answer there. Let's talk a little bit about this set of topics around uh, the risk-based pricing issue in particular, its impact on protected classes. Uh, we've had a lot of debate, of course, in the industry over the years about credit-based insurance scoring, uh, but this is really broader than that now in the race and insurance work streams at the NAIC. 
So sort of what are your views on that? How do you see the industry navigating these challenges and, and just kind of your general take on these sets of issues? Neil, as you know, this is such a multi-pronged topic, and, and just imagine some 50-plus regulatory jurisdictions addressing the, the monumental challenge of working collaboratively through the NAIC to, to help identify the need for and, and then articulate proposed regulatory actions. I want to emphasize two words that I use here, though, which is at the heart of, I think, of the insurance industry role in its interaction with the regulatory community, and those two words are need and proposed. And, and so first, what, what is the articulated need for, for greater regulation? And, and that, I think, is something that's a principal position that the industry takes on, on many of these issues. Uh, it's, it certainly helps guide then our, our thought process and how we can help collaborative, like collaboratively, in a sense, with the regulator on certain issues. But second, I, and I, this is important as well, you know, whatever the articulated standard produced by this, this body, this august body of NAIC commissioners, you know, the, the actionable work product that might or might not be pursued in the various jurisdictions from which these commissioners hail, they begin as a proposal and a proposed regulation or as a proposed uh, piece of legislation. You know, the insurance industry understands that, that in working with NIIC, hopefully we can do that collaboratively, but it still has the right and the responsibility to its policyholders, shareholders, stakeholders, et cetera, to utilize its collective right to, to free speech and association as articulated, as most people know, in the sort of the Nor Pennington doctrine, Nor Pennington doctrine, to petition its government to prevent or advance insurance regulation or legislation. So understanding each other's role in the process, the regulators and the industry, is, is pretty critical. And, and there's a phrase we use a lot in our government relations shop, and that's to assume positive intent. Now, we know issues such as rating factors like credit-based insurance scores or issues such as diversity in the insurance industry have the potential to cause some friction. But, but I'm fairly satisfied that well, these issues are being discussed for the most part with respect for the other side's position. In fact, we sometimes see there aren't really just two sides, but perhaps three or four sides to any of these complex, many of these complex issues that are addressed. And so I, I think going forward, keeping those principles in mind, I think will, will benefit both insurers and, and regulators as we try to work through some of these, these issues. But I, I do like to keep those those two points that I made in line, because I think I, it helps, I would like to think it helps guide the thoughtful process. Yeah, I agree with you. Sometimes these issues can get emotionally charged and allegations get thrown around. And I've always felt that if the regulatory community and the industry would do a little better job of listening to one another and kind of assuming the proper motivation um, at the outset, we'd probably be a lot better off. And, and your, your words there uh, certainly are good, good words to help guide the industry and in how we approach these issues, uh, no question. So let's talk a little bit about one specific piece of work that you've done. Um, I know you've done a lot of work over your, over your years on, on the issue of trade secret. In fact, you, you authored an insurance regulatory journal article on it. It's an important, perhaps obscure, uh, but an important set of topics for the industry. 
So, you know, what is what are some of your thoughts on any critical steps insurers might take to protect confidential data? That confidentiality question gets brought up a lot in insurance regulation. So just give us some of your thoughts there. Sure thing. So, well, first of all, as long as our society continues to support a properly functioning insurance market, I, I suspect that confidential data protection will be a prerequisite for creating the transparency that regulators need from insurers in order to understand the business. Now, there are instances where a statute or a regulation clearly designates certain information as trade secrets, such as credit-based insurance scores, at least in some, some states, it, it's designated as a trade secret. When, um, when the statute requires an insurer to file certain information with the regulator. But that's not normally the case. So, so the insurer has to rely upon the applicable state's open records law carve-out for trade secrets. So generally, that's, that's applicable to any type of business, but it's particularly important for insurance companies because should a regulator demand certain information which the insurer considers trade secret, then that's, that's when the steps you're asking for are, are important, the steps that you, you, you wanted me to sort of guide through for a minute. So I, I'll do that. For the most part, you know, no state grants an insurance regulator the authority to determine whether the insurer's claim is legitimate. That's, that's really not the regulator's purpose or the expertise, but the, but the insurer at least has to make a prima facie case for the protection. And that is just so the regulator has some justification for granting the insurer's request to protect that data from a public records request from a third party. To simply release the data upon request would likely be viewed as an unconstitutional taking of the insurer's property without due process and or compensation. So, so should that third party request be made, the regulator usually agrees to notify the insurer that the insurer's property is being sought. And that the insurer has so many days to file an action in court to protect the data. And that's where the insurer's claims made to the regulator to satisfy the prima facie case for protection is now going to be potentially tested. The test, it generally, in, in this prima facie case, and, and I, there are several elements, but I'll just sort of sub, try to summarize a little bit. That is whether the insurer takes steps to protect the data from disclosure to external parties and from being released internally to those who do not need to know. Second thing would be how the data could have potential value to its competitors and then the harm caused by, by its release should, it, should the data be released. I think those important points are protection and value. And absent those two things, it is likely to be difficult to convince a regulator that the insurer's word for it is going to be enough for the regulatory forbearance. So I would I would I think the general general comment there the guide I think is very important is if you believe your data is a trade secret you should be protecting it and and also you should understand how it can have potential value to a competitor and I emphasize potential doesn't you don't have to prove actual value you don't have to necessarily prove that that some competitor has actually used data of that type to compete. In, in the market, et cetera. It, it's the potential. What, what could happen if your data was obtained by a third party, in particular uh, a creditor, or sorry, a, a competitor? So that's, that's, that's what I wanted to emphasize there. Yeah, I, I think all of you listeners probably get a little glimpse into Richard's brain there. Uh, you see why he's been so valuable to NAMIC over the years and, and, and valuable to the industry. And he's, he's just really got some keen insights into some of these regulatory matters that that are uh, very much 
front and center today and very important to us. So as I mentioned at the outset, uh, Richard was a, a winner of a NAMIC Service Award earlier this year at our annual convention in September, recognizing his work to NAMIC, but also really the wider industry over the years on any of these topics that we've discussed here today. So Richard, talk a little bit about why you got involved in NAMIC and kind of how, what value do you see in collaborating with the Trade Association and other member companies? Uh, just sort of talk through that with us for a minute. Sure thing, Neil, and I'll take the second question first and, and then get to engagement with NAMIC. But first thing, as you know, it's, it's difficult to accomplish anything without friends and people who share your interest. And if there's anything we have in common with NAMIC and its member companies, it, it's a competitive mindset. Uh, we're, we're, we're friendly to each other. Industry uh, participants are pretty friendly to each other. Um, and even NAMIC members who compete against each other. But, but we're competitors who like nothing better than to beat up each other in the, in the market, insurance marketplace, and as long as that playing field is, is even. So trade associations, I think, help companies come together for a common cause, but it also helps them articulate their purpose and also to help shine a light on efforts that could damage the market and the level playing field. But but I, I did want to want to just highlight State Farm. Yes, uh, is a member of NAMIC, so it might seem natural to to relate and work well with NAMIC. But but it's more than that. I I've worked with NAMIC for 20 years. Uh, Neil, my my first true exposure to NAMIC was through yourself and Dr. Bob Detlison, uh, which I missed for his contributions to looking at, at insurance from an economics perspective. Uh, I learned a lot from you both. And even then, I admired NAMIC's principled approach to insurance regulation and advocacy on behalf of its members, never needing to justify its free market bona fides, and always willing to address issues head on. But I have also learned that NAMIC is much more than that. It is said that you can understand an organization's values, what it truly values, by looking at how it spends its resources. Just one glance at NAMIC's premier website gives a glimpse into its priorities, and I'd say it's about service, excellence, loyalty, and integrity. And watching this great organization grow has been a, a true pleasure and an honor. Well, Richard, it's, I, I'm with you. On, we could use Bob these days. Um, and, and somebody else that had a big brain that we like to use an awful lot. And you and he, I know, did a lot of work together over the years and were a pretty good duo for the whole industry for a long time. Well, listen, again, Richard, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for your service to not only to NAMIC, but to the entire insurance industry, everybody in the industry, whether they really know it or not, um, have, have, are better off because of your involvement with us in the industry and your your touching of the advocacy issues and kind of shaping the public policy that affects all insurers today. So, again, thanks for that. Congratulations on the NAMIC Service Award and look forward, of course, to continuing to work with you as we go forward. Thank you so much, Neil. It's great to have uh, been with you today and, and good luck to NAMIC uh, with, the, with, with all the challenges that we have going on today and being able to service all of, all of our members, all of your members. I really appreciate the working with you. And that's a wrap for us this week on Insurance Uncovered. We hope you'll join us again when we're back on December 1st with more insurance news and interviews. Until then, I'm Kathy Imus. Have a great day.